Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians, going into chapter 7. The discussion then is about marriage, and I've entitled this Freedom in Marriage. If we read uh, chapter 7 as part of a larger topic, that actually I think that clear up till chapter 11 he's dealing with the topic of freedom and even from the beginning of the book the Corinthians have proposed four different avenues to freedom freedom as being in the place of you know a ruler or telling people what to do the sovereign in which they judge other people they would critique Paul they would critique Apollos and each other their fellow Christians. And then freedom as transgression. We just dealt with the issue of the man living with his, we assume his stepmother. In some way he would displace his own father with his father's wife. And so there is this kind of idea, well I'm free to do whatever I want, transgression. And then uh, freedom as a kind of absolute, as we've seen in chapter 6. A kind of end in itself, freedom for freedom's sake, freedom from any constraint. They've said, well, we are free to do anything, that the the law does not restrain us. I think we're still dealing with the issue of freedom in chapter 7, but clearly he says this in verse 1, now for the matters that you wrote about, and so he's addressing and, and answer their questions. Let's read the passage. Part of the, we did this in chapter 6, same problem. We have to sort out what they're saying and what Paul's saying. Uh, It's an unfortunate thing that people, you know, there's no quotation marks in the Greek, and so people read what the Corinthians are saying, and they're missing the point. No, that's not what what Paul is saying. It's it's what the Corinthians are saying. So in in this chapter, freedom may be seen as a sort of asceticism abstaining from sex and even in marriage or be single or even in in marriage to abstain and it's still a problem of misconstrued freedom which Paul is going to spend several more chapters working out but let's read uh, chapter 7 verse 1 to 7 now concerning the matters about what you wrote it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer but then come back together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am but each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. I think he's saying some people have the gift of singleness 
And some people have the gift of being married. I think he's affirming both things are equally good. Let me go back through the passage, though, and see, this is actually Richard Hayes. We need to go through and sort out who's saying what in this. In other words, Paul is quoting their letter, and we don't want to confuse their letter with Paul's letter. Now, I will respond to the matters which you wrote about. You propose that for the sake of holiness and purity, married couples should abstain from sexual intercourse. As you say, it is a fine thing for a man not to touch a woman. But since that is unrealistic, let each have sexual intercourse with his own wife and let each wife have sexual intercourse with her own husband. Marriage creates a mutual obligation for a couple to satisfy one another's needs. Therefore, let the husband give the wife what he owes her and let the wife likewise give what she owes to her husband. For the wife does not rule her own body, the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not rule his own body, the wife does. And so this gets at the idea. Paul is not saying that this abstinence is a good thing. But the Corinthians, have, they, they have these various ideas. Uh, we've just, in chapter 6, some are visiting prostitutes. And then in chapter 7, now they're talking about complete abstinence. I think the common reading of this text gets it exactly wrong. And that is that Paul in some way is grudgingly permitting marriage itself as a kind of distasteful concession to the lusts of the flesh. But it is the Corinthians who are seeking to renounce marriage, not Paul and seeking to renounce sexual intercourse. And it is Paul who insists in a, in a very robust, realistic way that marriage, sexual relations are normal and necessary. They're confusing the body with the principle of the flesh. Now this is a kind of subtle thing. Paul's very straightforward about the body, right? But then we do not want to confuse the flesh and what he means by the flesh. I think last week I gave you the illustration of lizard man and cat man. People that are doing body modifications. Making themselves look like animals through a series of operations. These people themselves, if you go on, you probably don't want to go on YouTube and see them. But should you be curious, they are bizarre looking people. But they're, they're plagued. They are as they testify we're trying to heal our own wombs we're trying to reclaim our bodies we're trying to proclaim ownership of the body Soren Kierkegaard describes it there's a kind of in despair that people there's a disjunction in identity in which in some way we don't possess ourselves we are not ourselves and in attempting to become ourselves we get rid of ourselves. That's the problem, right? The difference, you know, what is the transaction? What is the psychology of these people? Because I think they're similar to all of us. It's just an extreme case. There is a kind of distancing from the body, from the physical, biological body, such that the body becomes a medium for the soul. And people think of their soul 
as the true essence of who they are. And so one does not identify immediately with the physical body. Many of these body modifiers picture their body as a kind of blank canvas upon which they can carry out their artistic work, a kind of screen, a kind of orthopedic for the soul. And this gives rise in Paul's explanation actually to two bodies. There's the biological dimension, that's what we're really talking about in chapter 7, just very practical things. But I think that in his picture of the flesh, this biological dimension is refused. And yet this refusal then creates a kind of, there is a kind of outsized picture of the importance of the body that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7 that I do what I don't want to do. In some way the flesh is the principle here of sin that's out of control. He doesn't call this problem the body, he calls this sarks, the flesh. Body's no problem, right? The body, he's very straightforward in all this. So he uses the term soma body when he's talking, and that's the, the idea here in chapter 7. But the sarks of the flesh is a principle or orientation which has taken on a force and significance that is out of control. And I think that's the problem here with the Corinthians. It's this second body, you know, it's the flesh, not the biological body, which we struggle with, which makes up maybe our unconscious desire. Think here of exponential desire. Think of idolatrous desire. The biological body and the physical body, you know, that hunger, well-being, survival, reproduction, is not at the center of, our, of the human problem. But it's this interior body, the second body. And of course, what Paul is doing throughout his letters is specifically exposing the delusion, the deception surrounding the second body. So Paul is not picturing sex and marriage as in some way an obstacle to true spirituality. This is the, way, this is the Corinthians problem. He's doing just the opposite. He pictures sex and marriage as playing a necessary role, not definitive of who we are, not definitive, but important. Unlike the Pharisees, and this is why many people think Paul was probably married, because the Pharisees demanded that a man of a certain age be married. And unlike the Jews and the Greeks who pictured marriage as something that you could easily dissolve, Paul, like Jesus, and we think he is reflecting a teaching of Jesus here in this passage, he sees marriage, he sees gender, sexuality as very important. Marriage is binding, but it's not all important. And so in this, he's resisting a teaching which may be present in Corinth. Maybe it's a kind of Gnosticism, but you can see this even in some Jewish teaching that has been fused with Greek understanding. For example, a a man named Philo, he would have been someone that Paul is probably reading. Philo pictures the feminine woman as synonymous with emotions and with the sensuous body, and you want to get rid of that. And so there is this kind of ascetic understanding. And what you really want in this misunderstanding 
is to be truly masculine. And to be masculine is to follow the law, to follow reason, and to shed, your, shed the, the feminine aspect. And so Philo depicts these two bodies, two principles, that he's going to call the male, the male and female principle. Femaleness is representative of the passions, fear, sorrow, pleasure. And this is to be subjugated. Think here of Paul in Romans 7 talking about the continual struggle. I think that the ideal in this asceticism is that in some way we'll always have this struggle within ourselves. Philo is just depicting it as a struggle between what he's calling femaleness. Understand this is all within one individual and with maleness. And so he says that if we can get rid of the female element, if we can get rid of the ways of women, this corresponds to the mind full of the law. And this then represents the masculine. He's equating law, logos, reason, itself as, as overcoming the feminine. And God himself. Yeah, I hope you understand. I'm, I'm depicting this. This is not the correct understanding. I'm depicting the wrong understanding that I think Paul is combating. But in this, God is pictured as male, that God is pictured as apophatic, that is, he's free of any kind of emotion. And we're to strive toward this divine masculine. And so pleasure, passion, Philo says, this deserves cursing, as it shifts the standards of the soul and makes a person a lover of passion, I'm quoting Philo, instead of a lover of virtue part of the body modification movement that there's literal genital piercing branding cutting maybe that's too literal in, in of what he's saying but the concept is the same he says you have to exercise authority you have to be a king over your body a ruler over your body like a king over a country and this, to rule the senses and passions is the means to freedom the law, you know, is to be, I, I think this is what we're getting at. I think this is a literal inscribing of the law on the body. The body is feminine, passive. It's the receptor of the masculine law. Philo says, for progress is indeed nothing else than the giving up of the female gender by changing it into the male. And understand what he means by female and male. Give up the sensuous body. This is, I think, the, the misunderstanding that Paul is facing. That in this, freedom is you know, the obliteration of the body, the obliteration of the female. I think the way that Paul would describe this misunderstanding, one can shed the body. Kierkegaard would call it despair. What we're really doing is assuming the burden. Look at these people. Go on YouTube and look at the painful process. You know, many people are going through gender modification, but these people are literally, they're, they're going, their whole body is being modified. That they're unwittingly assuming death. They're inscribing the law the letter of the law, not on stone, but in the flesh, in their own flesh, imagining that in assuming the law, they're going to avoid death itself. 
The dead, after all, are immortal, right? They're no longer subject to dying. And so to identify with the dead letter is to achieve a kind of immortality. And so for Paul, I think from Paul's perspective, this fearful, and I think fear is the key word here, this fearful sacrifice of the body, this fearful asceticism is an outworking of a deceived orientation to the law. And of course, the answer to this, Christ has suspended the body of sin. He suspended the law along with its punishing effects. It's not that one can sacrifice or needs to sacrifice their body as if they are not their body. Nor is it that one can pretend to float free of the body as in either extreme asceticism or extreme indulgence. Paul, just in a very straightforward, acknowledges the body, the soma, the biological, the physical body, but does not presume to treat it as he would the flesh. The flesh is our problem, not the body. And, And again, the flesh is this principle. The flesh, the body inscribed by the law with its excessive enjoyments and trauma. This is undone in Christ. I believe we actually have access to ourselves, to our own physical body in a way in Christ that we did not otherwise. The flesh is done away with and now we have access to the full reality of the physical body. And this is what in accounting for the body in this chapter, Paul, he's bypassing the principle of the flesh. The Corinthians are not. They're caught up in this. And so Paul's practical application of the suspension of the law, of the body of sin, the body of death as he calls it, or the flesh, is an emphasis on mutual submission. The wife is in submission to the husband, the husband is in submission to the wife. It's mutual. It's not one or the other. It's not a hierarchy. There's not the notion of the body as an autonomous thing, that we own it. No, we're part of a corporate body. In marriage, you're part of a a plurality. Paul says the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband, and likewise the husband. And so Paul acknowledges the body, but notes our individual bodies are tied together in two ways, in marriage and in the body of Christ. Do you not know, he says, that your bodies are members of Christ? So he doesn't bypass the physical body, but accords it its proper role, which is neither fearful nor repressive. And so I think by affirming the rightness, the necessity of sexual love in marriage, and only there, Paul rejects the extreme position of those who believe their bodies should be kept free of any kind of indulgence, any free, uh, kept free of sexual contact. He says in verse 7, he wants everyone to be as I myself am. But at the same time, he recognizes that different people have different gifts. Not everyone is called to celibacy, and we presume that Paul is only called to celibacy after we presume that he was married and his wife has passed away. So maybe marriage itself is a gift. We're all gifted, Paul says. But the specific notion I think the Corinthians are facing is something very similar to what 
in the second century is going to be Gnosticism. The idea of the body in some way being evil, the physical body, that we need to completely do away with it. That's nothing. Paul has no idea like that. For the Corinthians, you know, power, salvation, deliverance is through knowledge. It sounds very similar to Philo. They're going to think themselves out of their bodies. An impossible feat. And their freedom here is going to enslave them, strangely. Irenaeus in the second century, in talking about Gnosticism, they would specifically resist. You know, what is Paul's answer here? Paul is going to say, you're slaves to righteousness. You're slaves to the, in the body of Christ. Think here of high-class, first-century Greeks. What's the worst thing you could be? Well, probably a slave. I'm sure this is very irritating to them. And Irenaeus says that the Gnostics of the second century said that anyone who acknowledges him who was crucified is still a slave. But whoever denies him is, a, is free. What are they saying? You deny Christ crucified. Christ is, you know, they're saying he's not embodied. He's not subject to death. I think there's already that tendency. The Gnostics saw themselves as free from the world, free from the constraints of sex and marriage. They exist, you know, as pneumatic, you know, spiritual persons detached from the flesh. And this results in either extreme libertine practices, transgression, or practices of asceticism. And these wise guys imagine they are completely free and they exercise or show their freedom in these, I think, in these two extremes. Not a, an idea we still have with us, right? And so Paul's idea of being a slave to righteousness or a slave to, to God, it can't have set very well with them. And it, maybe even today that's the problem in the headlines. The people that would imagine they're hyper-spiritual. It can lead to a backlash of fleshly indulgence. You know, those who say, I'm free to do anything, and those who say, I must abstain from everything, they're equally setting themselves up outside of their God-given creaturely limitations. The attempt to escape our finitude, whether one, you know, one way or the other, is bound to fail. It's bound to send us crashing down. And that's why Paul gives this very straightforward counsel husbands and wives should cling together and fulfill one another's needs and so Paul places an entirely new emphasis an emphasis completely lacking in the Greek and Roman world of his day upon mutuality reciprocity mutual agreement in marriage sexual union is for the other rather than simply for the husband it's of joint mutual it is not to be used for power or control and so Paul articulates a view of marriage I think that stands as a challenge both to the ancient world but I think to the modern world also marriage partners are neither placed in any kind of hierarchical relation with one over the other nor set apart as you know I'll do my thing you do your thing autonomous units everybody doing what they please the relationship of marriage is one of mutuality, one of mutual submission. 
And of course, it's in the marriage relationship that we are practicing for our relationship in the body of Christ. That here too, there is a mutuality, a mutual submission to one another. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.